Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ron Fine of the group Free Speech for People, who expresses concern about what appears to be the Justice Department's lagging investigation into Donald Trump's multi-pronged conspiracy to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Jim Walsh of the group Food and Water Watch, who talks about congressional staffers' recent climate protest on Capitol Hill and actions President Biden can immediately take without Congress to address the climate crisis. And Alyssa Carpenter, co-founder of the group Citizens for Arsenal Accountability, who discusses her group's demand to the Pentagon to end open-pit burning of toxic munitions at Virginia's Radford Army Ammunition Plant. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Police violently broke up a July 10th protest of more than 1,000 angry Chinese depositors who had rallied outside a branch of the People's Bank of China in the city of Zhengzhou, the provincial capital of Hunan. The protesters were demanding their life savings back from banks that have run into a deepening cash crisis. Anguished account holders have staged several demonstrations at banks in Zhengzhou over the past two months. Several days after the most recent and largest protest, government authorities announced compensation for small investors and depositors and a crackdown on an alleged criminal gang who had taken over local banks. Since April, four rural banks in Hunan province have frozen millions of dollars worth of deposits threatening the livelihoods of hundreds of thousands of customers in an economy already battered by harsh COVID lockdowns. Foreign Policy magazine reports this is a common pattern of Beijing authorities responding to local grievances. Initially, police attempt to suppress the protests, but later authorities often react to complaints by launching official investigations. Beijing is extremely sensitive to situations involving social unrest and economic instability, especially in the powerful real estate industry, which is now suffering from a rapid decline in property values. Two years ago, hedge fund billionaire Ken Griffin spent $54 million to defeat a constitutional amendment in Illinois that would have increased the tax rate on wealth from 5% to 8%. The amendment was defeated despite the support of Illinois Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker. Opposition to the amendment was backed by some of the state's top billionaires. ProPublica reports Griffin, who is among the richest men in the U.S., got a good deal for his political investment by saving an average $51 million in annual state taxes on his $1.7 billion in income. Illinois currently has a 5% income tax rate below the rate of surrounding Republican-controlled states, including Iowa and Missouri. In June, Griffin announced he is moving his family and his hedge fund, Citadel Securities, from Chicago to Miami, Florida, a state without an income tax. Griffin had been planning the move for some time, according to a statement by Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. This is yet another example of high-profile corporations and billionaires moving to low-tax states like Florida and Texas. 
Earlier this year, the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project in San Antonio, Texas, asked the Secretary of State for 25,000 voter registration applications as part of the organization's effort to empower Latinos to participate in this November's election. But the annual request was rejected for a lack of paper applications. The shortage of these forms in Texas was due to the state's new restrictive voting law, SB1, that meant all registration applications had to be reprinted, a process hampered by supply chain printing issues. According to the Center for Public Integrity, the Southwest Voter Group eventually received the voter registration applications they requested, but the shortage of applications disrupted efforts to register voters in a state where newly drawn congressional and legislative district maps give white voters outsized power. The group's leaders fear the shortage of voter registration forms earlier this year had stopped Latinos and blacks and other groups from registering to vote. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After completing a series of eight public hearings conducted by the House Select Committee investigating former President Trump and his inner circle's role in the January 6 Capitol Hill insurrection, there are two major questions that confront the nation. Will Donald Trump and his co-conspirators, in their failed coup attempt, be held accountable for their crimes against the Constitution? And what safeguards must be adopted to prevent attempts to overturn future presidential elections? Although a July 26 Washington Post story reports that the U.S. Department of Justice is investigating Trump, many legal experts are alarmed that the Justice Department appears to have had little or no knowledge about testimony heard in recent House hearings that incriminated Trump, delivered by former White House staffers. In the view of many legal and constitutional scholars, there's a growing body of evidence that should result in one or more charges being brought against Trump. That includes seditious conspiracy, obstructing an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government, and manslaughter. Your reporter spoke with Ron Fine, legal director with the group Free Speech for People, who talks about his concerns regarding what appears to be the Justice Department's lagging investigation into Donald Trump's multi-pronged conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election and the electoral reforms urgently needed to prevent attempts to subvert the results of future presidential elections. I think the Garland uh, Department of Justice has been a big disappointment. Now, it is true that January 6th itself uh, is complex and and requires uh, a a complex investigation, but what we are hearing is that the Department of Justice hadn't even interviewed some of the witnesses that are Uh, speaking at the January 6th committee hearings and and was quite surprised to hear some of their testimony for the first time on national television. That tells me that they're not uh, looking in the right directions. But even apart from January 6th, there were previous crimes identified by the Department of Justice with Trump involved that the Department of Justice is essentially letting statutes of limitations expire on. And I'll give two examples. One is in the 
2016 election, you may remember that Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's former personal lawyer, um, ended up pleading guilty to, uh, to a charges where Individual One, who is the president of the United States, had uh, ordered him to, uh, to, to pay off um, Trump's mistresses. Uh, and you know, Trump was identified in the charging documents as the president of the United States, and Cohen confirmed that he was instructed to do so by Trump. And, and the Department of Justice has a policy of not charging sitting presidents. Fair enough. But Trump has been out of office now for quite some time. And the second thing is the Mueller report. Mueller laid out all of the elements of charges related to obstruction of justice, criminal obstruction of justice related to Trump's efforts to shut down the Russia investigation. Again, Mueller uh, held back from actually uh, recommending any charges against Trump because of that policy against charging a sitting president. But Trump has been out of office and the Department of Justice is not following up any of those uh, things that its that its own prosecutors have already identified as crimes committed by Trump. So overall, the U.S. Department of Justice has not been at the forefront of Trump accountability. Instead, it's falling to the the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, and to nonprofit groups like Free Speech for People and others who are uh, working around the gaps that the Department of Justice should have been filling. You know, you hear a lot of pundits talk about the danger of charging the former president, Donald Trump, with any number of charges. The concern expressed is that it will provoke violence from his supporters around the country. But of course, there are other people raising the alarm that if Donald Trump is above the law and is not held accountable for one of the most serious crimes ever committed against America's democracy, that in the words of some people, what we saw on January 6th will just be a dress rehearsal for the next coup attempt. I, I agree with that latter position, which is to say that although it certainly uh, should give pause um, that uh, charging a former president with crimes uh, would be an uh, unprecedented step, not charging him, uh, allowing this to go completely unpunished would be the far greater danger. And furthermore, if a decision is to be made based on complex balancing and evaluation of what's good for healing the nation, that decision shouldn't be made by Merrick Garland. He's not elected by anyone. That decision, if, if that is a decision that's going to be made, belongs to the president of the United States. So Garland's job is, if the facts support criminal charges, and they sure seem to, then to recommend those charges and to pursue them. And then if Biden wants to issue a pardon, as Gerald Ford did of Richard Nixon, that's up to the president of the United States, not up to the attorney general to decide what he thinks is in the nation's best interest. Ron, I did want to ask you about the reform of our election laws. It's very obvious that after January 6th, there's a lot of repairs that have to be made to our election system that were quite vulnerable to uh, Trump and his inner circle who attempted to overturn the popular will expressed in the 2020 election. One of the things that is being worked on right now by a group of bipartisan senators is to reform the Electoral Count Act. And I wondered if you'd tell our listeners a bit about that, its importance, and I know there are other pieces of the reforms that need to be put in motion. 
most of your listeners know about the general idea of the Electoral College, where um, you know it's not a national popular vote, but that it's done by states, and then there's this uneven count um, where. Uh, you know, states allocate typically all of their electors to whoever got a slight majority in that state. Uh, and, you know, most of the time, the popular vote ends up tracking the Electoral College, although several times uh, in recent uh, elections it has not. Um, but uh, the details of how those electoral votes get counted uh, has been exposed as an incredibly creaky process. The The Constitution is very vague about uh, about that process, and Congress wrote um, a law in 1887, uh, 11 years after the uh, disputed election of 1876, called the Electoral Count Act. And it is honestly one of the worst written, most confusing statutes in the entire federal code. It's ambiguous, uh, it's hard to follow grammatically, and it is open to abuse. Although this is not the only problem um, that uh, threatens our democracy and uh, opportunities for election subversion. It's certainly an important one. And uh, recently, a bipartisan group of senators came forward with a proposal to reform the uh, Electoral Count Act. You, you can quibble with it on, on various points, um, and uh, undoubtedly it could benefit from some improvement, and there may be other proposals coming out of the House, but the Electoral Count Act as it currently stands is a disaster and absolutely needs to be fixed. That was Ron Fine, legal director with the group Free Speech for People and co-author of the book The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Find more analysis and commentary on the legal case against Donald Trump by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As the United States and world were suffering through record-breaking and deadly heat waves, droughts, wildfires, and floods, 165 congressional staffers signed on to an open letter demanding that President Biden and Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer take ambitious and assertive action before the end of July to address the climate crisis. Not long after the letter was signed, more than a dozen of these staffers organized a protest action inside Leader Schumer's Washington office, declaring that he's not done enough to address the impact of climate change. Six staffers were arrested by police as they engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience. Earlier, President Biden had launched an effort to advance his climate agenda that aims to cut U.S. carbon emissions in half by 2030. Every Democratic senator's vote was needed to pass this bill through the reconciliation process in order to avert a Republican filibuster. But when West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who's personally heavily invested in his state's coal industry, opposed the plan, the legislation died. Your reporter spoke with Jim Walsh policy director with Food and Water Watch, who discusses the congressional staffer's climate protest, his group's recent report titled Averting Climate Catastrophe, while proposing actions President Biden can immediately take without Congress to address the climate crisis. The issues that, that we're facing with the climate and addressing the climate crisis are not issues of technical feasibility or financial feasibility. These are issues of political feasibility. What the staffers in D.C. Uh, did today is in, unprecedented. I have never 
seen anything or heard anything of this uh, ever occurring in the past. Usually congressional staff sit back and are quiet. They try to stay in the shadows and not have their voices be heard. But these congressional staff that were at the at Senator Schumer's office are the congressional staff that have been writing meaningful climate legislation. We've worked with some of these staffers and actually developing policies that will make this transition off of fossil fuels possible, and it needs to happen. And in order to make it happen, we need the public to continue building and following the lead of these congressional staffers and others who are speaking up about the urgent need of the climate crisis. And that doesn't mean that everyone needs to run and get arrested. But what it means is that we need to put pressure on our policymakers in our states to continue pushing for meaningful climate policies. It means taking time to call and write your elected officials. It means coming out to the rallies. It means sending emails to uh, policymakers. I see firsthand in Washington, D.C., the impact that these letters and actions have on individual offices. After we send out emails on topics, I will have staff from congressional office reach out to me to say, we want to talk about this issue. We've heard from our constituents and your members about these issues. And so these actions all matter. And whatever we're doing now, we need people to do more. Because what what is happening now is, is the political barriers are standing in the way of real progress. Now, some of these hurdles might be removed between now and Election Day, uh, but uh, we need to make sure that on Election Day, people are showing up to vote and they're, they're voting for climate champions, people who are actually going to make not only the investments in clean energy, but also make commitments to phase out the fossil fuel infrastructure. The building of clean energy is not enough. And moving these political barriers is paramount to making these things happen. And that's where we need the public to step up, do more, and continue taking action. As these congressional staffers demand of Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in the Senate to move forward on climate change legislation, there is a systemic bottleneck in the Senate with a filibuster. But from your perspective, and in reference to your recent report, Fossil Fuels Must End While Renewables Take Over, what is President Biden empowered to do right now without Congress? I'd like you also to comment on the demand of many climate activists today for Biden to declare a climate emergency to put some of those actions in motion. There are really two fundamental things that President Biden can do to address the climate crisis. And one is to stop fossil fuel production in every way he can. And he has a lot of power already to do that. He can actually step up and stop permitting for a number of fossil fuel projects. When President Biden came into office, one of his first executive actions was to deny and revoke permits for the Keystone XL pipeline. But we're still looking at pipelines sitting in front of President Biden for Line 3, another oil pipeline, Dakota Access, Mountain Valley Pipeline, pipelines in Alaska and elsewhere in the country. And so President Biden has the authority and he's used that authority to stop these fossil fuel projects from being put forward. And he needs to use his authority uh, as president to continue uh, that action that he did with Keystone XL. And he can no longer wait to do those things. Our planet cannot wait to do those things. 
and the communities on the front lines of these projects cannot wait for those things to happen. He can also help stop fossil fuels by revoking and not issuing new leases on fossil fuels on, on federal lands. President Biden um, can declare a climate emergency. And those other things, President Biden can do that tomorrow before he declares any plan of emergency. He could have done those things on day one. He could have stopped these things. And these are things that he promised to do on the campaign trail. But with a climate emergency, that unlocks the power of the president to take further action that is critically important to making sure that consumers have access to more clean energy options. He can use uh, his power uh, to declare a climate emergency and rework uh, resources in the federal government to divert money to clean energy development uh, and to build the heat pumps, the electric stoves and ovens, uh, the solar panels and windmills that we need to actually help make this transition possible. That was Jim Walsh, Policy Director with Food and Water Watch. Find a link to his group's recent report titled Averting Climate Catastrophe, Fossil Fuels Must End While Renewables Take Over by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. There's a site in Appalachia, in southwestern Virginia near Roanoke, called the Radford Army Ammunition Plant, that openly burns toxic military munitions and other waste, just like the burn pits the Pentagon used in Iraq and Afghanistan, that have been implicated in service members' serious health conditions. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus participated in a 12-day walk for Appalachia's future in late May and early June that trekked very close to the ammunition plant. One evening after a community dinner, Alyssa Carpenter, co-founder and co-chair of the group Citizens for Arsenal Accountability, spoke about her own health issues that likely resulted from the Army's toxic pollution. She also discussed her group's effort to hold the Pentagon accountable for the pollution generated at the plant and the illness that has resulted. Citizens for Arsenal Accountability opposes any burning of toxic materials whether in open pits or in a controlled space. The Radford Army Ammunition Plant is the largest uh, polluter of Virginia and the largest uh, arms manufacturer of the United States, I believe. Um, they practice open burning and incineration of uh, toxic chemicals to demilitarize uh, our Army's weapons. So they, they, are, um, they are both a production facility for ammunition, so it goes out and it also comes back in to be demilitarized uh, once it is expired. And it's an open burn process, which means whatever is burned goes just out into the air. And you had said that it's actually near a lot of vulnerable facilities. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So whenever you're doing open burning, all of the contaminants are put directly into the environment. And so it's really concerning because there are, uh, within a 10-kilometer distance around the Radford Army Ammunition Plant, there are um, eight elementary schools, 12 daycare centers, two major universities, and a host of family farms, residences, and nursing homes for our elder populations. Now you have some direct impact. Explain how you think or know that your problems are related to what goes on there. 
When I started college at Virginia Tech, I lived first at Fox Ridge, which is just down the road off of Price's Fork. Um, and then after uh, about two years, I moved to McCoy, uh, the community that is right across the river from the Radford Army Ammunition Plant. I was less than a mile from the ammunition plant, and I don't have any history of thyroid issues in my family. Um, so after I learned about these issues that you know my community was experiencing, we founded this organization and then four years later, I was diagnosed with the exact same issues that we had been advocating for our community over. I have um, thyroid disease and I had a goiter, which is where your, uh, your whole thyroid just kind of swells up, as well as multiple nodules. Um, those nodules were concerning because they can turn into cancer. And so I was advised that uh, my whole thyroid needed to be removed due to how, how diseased it was and, and how many thyroid nodules I had. Um, so within a month, um, my whole thyroid was removed. So after that, um, I had to begin taking synthetic thyroid hormones. And so my body has been really struggling to adjust. And um, I've had to kind of jump through the medical hoops of advocating for myself to receive proper care. When were you diagnosed? Um, July of 2020. So you mentioned that you have Earth Justice working with you. I know they're a very reputable and, and pretty successful legal operation. What is your group's strategy for getting rid of this open burning of toxic materials? Absolutely. So we've been working with a coalition of people uh, all across the United States with the ceasefire campaign. And, you know, through that strategy, we've been engaging with the EPA in order to end the loophole that allows open burning to continue at these types of facilities. Um, we've also done a lot of advocacy with our uh, local representatives and our senators, such as Tim Kaine, uh, to kind of help us halt the situation so we can make sure that if there is a safer alternative for our community, that, that is actually explored rather than um, choosing not to see what the alternatives are and install technology that is very old um, and that doesn't actually solve any of our issues, in fact creates more issues for our community um, as far as pollution goes. So the flyer I read, it sounded like you were saying, without being specific, that there were safer alternatives. What can you say about that? Um, yeah, so with our coalition work we're learning that there are a lot of different communities that have um, achieved a safer alternative than burning because incineration is burning and open burning is burning and neither of those methods of disposal are are safe for communities and so we know that there are technologies we know that some communities have already implemented them and are using them at their facilities rather than relying on burning so with all of the you know kind of the ball rolling in the media um, and in legislative circles with veterans receiving support for their health issues um, that have come from open burning it's really important for us to let everybody know that it's not just veterans um, it is you know my neighbors it is your neighbors um, it is our entire community it is people in you know communities like Guam and Puerto Rico and Alabama and Kentucky and California who are also experiencing these issues um, these are civilians and it's absolutely happening to us as well and there needs to be an expansion of the benefits that are um, awarded in order to achieve justice for our community as well. That was Alyssa Carpenter co-founder and co-chair of the group Citizens for Arsenal Accountability. Learn more about the group's campaign to halt the military's burning of toxic waste and the serious health impacts that result from the practice by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, WXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, KPFT in Houston, Texas, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.